0: It's been 20 years since 9/11. Today's college freshmen—they weren't even alive then—and with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9/11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast: 20 heroic stories about 9/11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't, but this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath, who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses today's story episode 17 of 20. To me
1: what I tell everybody when we do funeral planning or you know doing funerals our job is to take the worst day of these people's life and just make it a little bit better and by doing that is all the little attention to detail and all that kind of stuff so we meet with them and we're explaining to them you know fire department traditions you know that we probably sound like Charlie Brown's teacher where they don't you know, they're kind of glazed over, just like wah-wah, you know, you're, you're distraught, you just, so, but later on, I've seen letters that came from family members, and they do remember all those little attention to details, and hopefully that helps them to begin with the healing process.
0: Lieutenant Joe Point is the commanding officer of the FDMY's ceremonial unit, which oversees all of their funerals, as well as over 800 events annually including graduations, promotion ceremonies, and parades. Their most solemn and important work is funerals for line of duty deaths, where attendance can number between 10 to 15,000, with thousands of first responders lining the streets leading up to the church. The 9-11 related funerals have been a lot. 343 firefighters died on 9-11, and 260 have died in the aftermath from ground zero illnesses our nation is fortunate to have a man like Joe making sure that they are properly honored. Joe LaPointe's story after this message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's return to Joe LaPointe on his service in the FDNY.
1: I got promoted with approximately 12 years on a job to lieutenant. Our class was... uh, they used to have a management program where they, they assigned guys either to the academy as instructors, or they, they assigned you to headquarters. Most of us not very happy about, they called the Shanghai program because it wasn't a volunteer program it was something you you know, you're going. My particular class, we got assigned to um, the division of training. So we were instructors. So we relieved 15 guys. And unfortunately, some of those guys, Glenn Perry, Mike Quilty, Phil Pettit, a couple of those guys, they perished on September 11th. So, you know, they, their year detail was up, they went out and got assigned to the field and subsequently they were working in units that day and wound up getting killed. It's, in one way it seems like yesterday and in one way it seems like forever ago, so. What happens is September 11th comes that day, I'm off and I'm still doing body and Fender on the side. Uh, Doing my day off and uh, I'm in the middle of getting ready to paint a car and I get a first delivery and a guy comes in and he says, you know, plane hit the World Trade Center. So I'm like, right across the bridge, uh, the Gothels, my shop was on this side of the Gothels Bridge on Staten Island. So you're assuming in Linden Airport they have small uh, little private Cessnas and stuff. So that's what you're assuming, you know, somebody, you know, inadvertently. And uh, so about 15 minutes later we get a second delivery and the guy comes in and says did you see the plane hit the World Trade Center and so I like two guys you know like so I'm like well I asked him the same thing like like a little like private plane he goes oh no no this is something you know so in a close proximity to the shop I can't really see the water or the Manhattan skyline but drive down to a part called Richmond Terrace and I could see exactly what's going on so start making some phone calls that was one of the first times the FDNY had what to call a total recall. So they were calling guys in. So I just happened to have my all my gear with me because we had the opportunity to work overtime on the weekends. So we carry up carried a bunker gear. So I drove down to rescue five. Rescue five had uh, buses where they were shuttling members down to the ferry to go across. So um you know they had a, a journal there which they you know, one of the chiefs wanted everybody you know, to t- take a, you know, because this way they could track. They didn't have any idea who was going, all off-duty members. And, you know, I know they were setting different triage areas all over. Stand-on Yankee uh, Stadium was supposed to be a triage area. And um, unfortunately, there wasn't that many injured. You know, everybody, it was more people killed than, than, you know, injured. They thought they would have all kinds of people that they would have to treat. And that didn't turn out to be the case. So we took the ferry over. Um, I remember riding with a, a gentleman, Billy O'Connor, who I worked with as a firefighter and then transferred out here to Staten Island. Billy subsequently, um, had cancer and, and since has passed. But I remember the priest coming, you know, to give general absolution to basically everybody that, you know, was on the bus and then just to lighten the mood. I'm like, uh, hey father, Billy wants to know if we make it through this, you know, does this carry forever? You know, we're good. We know, You know, so just a little, uh, humor, but, um, It was definitely uh, a unique experience. Um, You know, as Jogi could tell you, a lot of times we're going to a fire or you're, you know, there's guys are are still joking around and everything, but you could tell, you know, there was no, you know, I think everybody kind of had the magnitude of what, you know, what is transpiring. So um, was as... We were going, as we were getting on the ferry, the towers came down. So when we got over there, it was basically just a a cloud of dust. I remember it being like mayhem, like everybody was trying to, they had uh, one of the chiefs, uh, Chief Harring, was trying to uh, set up like a command, like everybody from an engine assigned over here, a truck assigned over there, and then try and come, you know, put some kind of system in place. But it just was, I seen a lot of guys, you know, they're waiting online, and it was just too frustrating just to sit there waiting online to try to get an assignment. That guys just broke off and started doing whatever they could do, you know. Um, you know, I remember, you know, running into guys that were looking for their brothers. I do remember running into Dennis Olberg, and Dennis was holding a shoe of his son. His son was working that day, so uh, you know, a lot of. A lot of different things. I remember one guy telling another guy that, you know, I seen Joe Smith, so I just said, bro, I just hope you gotta be 250% right that you've seen Joe Smith. You've got, you know what I mean? You don't wanna give anybody any kind, any kind of false hope. Like, we, in the beginning it was, the missing list was, you know, 10 times longer than the 343, you know what I mean? Because they just, you know, guys were saying well i was with my company and i was at this spot and now i can't find anybody Do you know what i mean and those were a lot of them were companies that you know when the tower started come down guys ran you know just to take refuge somewhere and you know totally got separated and had no idea so i took a i took a few weeks i think uh, or even you know days weeks to to iron out you know who was actually missing and who was you know just misplaced or just, you know, were broken up from their guys. So, um, we basically stayed there to the, the next morning. I can remember, you know, we didn't have any equipment. We really didn't have any tools. And, you know, we we started finding people, but people were trapped. You know, they, they were deceased, but they were, you know, trapped with, with amongst the steel and stuff and really couldn't. So we were trying to figure out what we could do to mark those areas you know, where there was, you know, know, uh, people's remains. So I remember there was, like I said, there was no real tools. So being we're still Shanghai, we're part of the division training, obviously there's no training going on, but uh, so the chief at the time basically said, listen, you know, we're gonna, our assignment now is we're gonna be down there along with everybody else in a part of the rescue recovery, you know, to start, you know, trying to dig and uh, find uh, find uh, you know find whoever we can find. So uh, I remember living in Staten Island, it's just a ride over the ferry. They wanted me to drive up to The Rock to get on a bus.
0: Which would have meant he would have had to go 10 miles past Ground Zero and then 10 miles back to it. So I'm like, Chief, it doesn't make sense.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm right here, I'm gonna go. So he's like, well, who's the chief here? I'm like, I, you're the chief here, but I'm telling you, it don't make sense. I'm not driving. Up to Randall's Island to get on a bus to go back down to Lower Manhattan and then to drive to Randall's Island. I said I'll meet the bus every morning and you know sign in. So he's like, I want you to check in once a week. So once a week I would give him a call just to tell him, listen, I'm with the guys, meet, meeting them every morning. We're doing what we got to do. So that goes on for uh, for a couple weeks and uh, I check in one day and he goes, uh, I need you to come up here. I'm like. We already went through this. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to get back on the ferry. He goes, no, I need you to come up here tomorrow. Tomorrow you're not going to go, you're not going to the recovery. You're coming up here to the academy. So went up there reluct- reluctantly that, you know what I mean? I'm like, you know, so he sits me down and he says, listen, we're starting to recover our guys. And currently, I think before that ceremony, you might consist of five or six individuals that work at the Academy and you know then then they would pull different groups in to uh, back then when you do a funeral the head prior to 9/11 the headquarters would run the inside of the church and the division of training would run the outside of the church so he goes over <clears throat> all right he goes you're gonna start running uh, you know organizing the Brooklyn Statenham funerals I'm like mate I'm like I don't know anything about this I go you got a book He's like, nah, he goes, you'll figure it out. Okay, we'll figure it out. So the first one we did was a gentleman named Alan Feinberg. He was from the 9th Battalion. He was from Marlboro, New Jersey. So Alan Feinberg is a Jewish guy. So we don't really even know what we're supposed to do for, you know, Catholic funeral or, you know, regular run-of-the-mill, you know, whatever film funeral. And now we go to do a Jewish funeral. So we got three Irish guys, three Italian guys. We're not really sure of what we're supposed to be doing. We're gonna figure it out. So um, we see Rabbi Patasnik is a fire, a fire department chaplain. He had just became one of the fire departments. So we've seen the rabbi. I'm like, oh that's a Rabbi Great. We're gonna he's gonna he's gonna let us know what we gotta do here. So we go go see him, introduce myself, and uh, he just looks at me and he's like, just do what you do, my son. He walks away. I'm like, what 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 was that? You know what I mean? So all right, we're gonna we're gonna wing this. So with that, one of the chiefs from the volunteer department comes across. You know, he's got stars, stripes, he looks like Captain Crunch, you know, he's like <laughs> in the volley world as a mark of respect, they bring their rigs, their apparatus to the funeral. That's what they do, that's their tradition. So he tells me, Listen, I got two hundred and fifty fire apparatus on that side of 109, what do you want me to do? I said, well, you're in charge. Keep them on that side of 109. He goes, you want the lights on? I'll leave that up to you. So he had all the rigs and their members lined up across and we kind of just winged it, you know what I mean? We, uh, I gotta say, you know, we're like, all right, you know, we didn't know whether it was good or what we did was good or bad, cause it was the first one we ever did, really, and then, uh, so, <clears throat> Unfortunately, just like anything else, uh, the more you do, you know, the better you get. So, uh, you know, we started recovering um, a lot of members, you know, a lot more members. So um, we had more services. There was also family members. You know, I think out of 343, approximately only 150 of them were ever recovered. So families didn't have anybody or anything. So... That's the first time in the history of the FDNY that we were never able to recover our members. So what happens is families' time went by where it's, you know, a month, two months, and our families start saying, well, maybe we should do something, you know, do a memorial service. So they started memorial services just to have something, you know, have some kind of closure. I remember some families would go as far as have a casket basically a casket with nothing in it just to to go to kind of be fall along the traditions that you know you would traditionally do at a funeral I remember you remember the flower boards they started these flower boards somebody came up with it where they basically was a flat board with a floral arrangement and it would be designed that would could be carried by four guys so again that would go along the tradition some of the Clergy in their churches weren't uh, the most cooperative, you know what I mean, but, you know, and then others were, you know what I mean, couldn't do more than, you know, more to assist the families, you know. To me, what I tell everybody when we do funeral planning or, you know, doing funerals, the ceremony unit, you know, the family assistance unit, um, clergy and the funeral director, us, the four of us together, our job is to take the worst day of these people's life and just make it a little bit better. And by doing that is all the little attention to detail and all that kind of stuff. So then, you know, I explain to, you know, families, it's, it's kind of when we, we meet with them and we're explaining to them, you know, fire department traditions, traditions that their loved one is entitled to, you know, that we probably sound like Charlie Brown's teacher where they don't, you know, they're kind of glazed over it, just like, wah, you know, you're, you're distraught, you're just... So, but later on, I've seen letters that came from family members and they do remember all those little attention to details. And hopefully that helps them to begin with their uh, the healing process. So,
0: More with Lieutenant Joe LaPointe after these messages from our sponsors. And now let's return to Lieutenant Joe LaPointe one of the things that came out of
1: september 11th there was a report afterwards done i believe they call it the mckinley report was to say what could be done better you know with the fdny and different things you know um, one of the units that was formed after that is the family assistance unit so the family assistance unit is a unit that is they have an assistant commissioner that reports directly to the commissioner so what happens is some of the feedback they got back from families was after the funeral that they kinda didn't have a direct connection back to the commissioner's office. So now this family assistance unit was formed, and it has we have uh, both EMS officers and fire officers that work together in conjunction with uh, the ceremony unit. So what happens is we have a, a notification that we have a, a death of a member. Most line of duty deaths except if you were a military and you're killed overseas are happening within the city you know what i mean so our job is we're going to respond to the funeral uh to the to the hospital we'll respond to the hospital with family assistance family assistance is going to coordinate the notifications with the commissioner's office of the family members and then transport those family family members to the hospital once the hospital you know they're at the hospital and you know the Going to see their loved one. They're going to be briefed um, by the commissioner, the mayor, you know, chief of department. So our job in the ceremony now is to arrange for what they call a dignified transfer. So dignified transfer is when you're killed in the line of duty, you have to go to the medical examiner's office for a autopsy. So we're working with NYPD Highway Patrol to come up with a route. So the route. If you're killed in the line of duty in the five boroughs, everyone goes to the chief medical examiner's office, which is over in Manhattan by Bellevue. So Mm -hmm. that's what our job is going to do. We're going to do is we're going to start planning and then, you know, family assistance is coordinating that the families are here. You know, families are coming to see their loved one. And then there'll come a point in time where family assistance is telling the family that we're going to start the dignified transfer. So the dignified transfer will be the route from which which the hospital, the member was brought to, to the medical examiners. we'll do is we'll line the route with rigs from FDNY, EMS, and NYPD. Members will be along the route. So uh, that's something that's done right from there, and then, then the member's brought to the medical examiner. Traditionally, Within 24 hours, they're going to release that member from the medical examiners, and now we're going to r- arrange for another dignified transfer to bring that member from the medical examiner's office to the funeral home of the family's choice. So, you know, we need to, uh, while we're talking to the family about everything that's going on, they need to choose a funeral home, and then we'll make the arrangements to transfer that member to the funeral home and then we have a funeral planning meeting. So, a funeral planning meeting is only family insistence, ceremonial members, and the funeral director. And we're going to assist the family with um, the planning. You know what I mean? Uh, we're going to help them, you know, with questions that the funeral director has. And then we're going to explain to them the traditions of the FDNY and what they're entitled to. So, traditionally, you know, that's usually a couple of days. Away, I mean, um, just so, you know, there's a lot of logistics and planning as the attendance could be between 10 and 15,000 members. So depending on where that member, traditionally the funeral is where the member lives or sometimes families will choose if the member lived, you know, in a different area and wants to go back to their hometown, it's basically the family's discretion wherever they want. So, and now once we picked, you know, we picked the location, we picked the dates. The family chosen the dates. Now we're gonna meet with uh, local law enforcement and uh, OEM, possibly from within the town, just because you know we can come. We're gonna uh, come to a little town and basically take over the town. There's 10 to 15,000 members arriving in town, so it just disrupts everything. So we want to court. You know, we do go out to the church, try and figure out. You know, is there parking locally for this? You know to accommodate, no, there's no parking. Okay, five miles away, there's a park. You know, there's a, a national park where we have parking for 5,000. Okay, now we're gonna set up possibly a shuttle with buses, and you know, buses. We have to worry about the weather-wise. If the weather is hot, you know, very hot day, we have to get water. We work hand in hand with uh, the Red Cross or Salvation Army. We may need to supplement them with additional supplies just so we can keep people hydrated. You have to pl- have a place to go to the bathroom, working with portisans, you know, maybe a tented area because if there's no way, you know, it's a very hot day and there's no shade. Um, we've done it a few times for NYPD funerals as a way to, to give back, to support them. They have their own ceremonial unit so they run their own funerals, but we've done since Lou and Ramos, that was the two officers that were uh, that were executed, we did a um, like a canteen. So we went there and we cooked hamburgers and hot dogs and you know, the unions kicked in, uh, a couple of foundations, a good friend of ours, John Martinson, we have uh, Gerard Chapura and another guy, uh, Scotty Kniff, there were three foundations along with the unions and some help from the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. They've helped us, and we've provided canteen. You know, so we're cooking hamburgers, hot dogs. We got bagels in the morning. Just a way to, you know, say, listen, we, are you know, we're here. We're, you know, we got you back. You know, what I mean, just a little. I just seen a letter from a guy that he was a, um, I think he was a, a NYPD cop, and he and he moved out to Oklahoma, and he wrote a letter saying, you know, he goes, you know there's always been a little rivalry between NYPD and FDNY, he goes, but he goes, I've been to three funerals. And he goes, I, I couldn't believe what I seen you, you know, what you guys did. So we started it, like I said, Lou and Ramos, I think might've been 214. And um, the first time we did it, the uh, Ramos's funeral was right by one of the local firehouses, 135, uh, Murrow's Turtles, they call it and a couple of our guys were there and they're like, you know, can you help us out? So we did a joint effort there and then the next funeral was uh, Lou's. There was not a firehouse in close proximity, but we were able, the schools were on vacation for winter break, we were able to uh, get the cafeteria from one of the public schools. So we we basically did all uh, barbecuing and cooking and then they let us use the the lunchroom basically to, to line up all the food and then, and then be able to get everybody in and out so again something that uh, you know, was never really done you know for you know and then they started the PBA president Pat Lynch and their guys started showing up at our funerals and cooking hot dogs and doing the same thing you know kind of the way it should have always been you know but uh, basically um, we're gonna plan everything so that we got our plan set The next would be the first is uh, the visitation, the wake wake service. So that's traditionally old school was two days, two days, two sessions. Things have changed. COVID has changed, you know, the way things do. But ultimately, it's the family's decision and, you know, between them and the funeral home, what they're going to do. So uh, the only thing we do on the final session of the last visitation is the FDNY does a final salute. So basically, we ask everyone to take their seats. A time out of tradition, the FDNY members from the firehouse will now render a final salute. We bring four or five guys up at a time. They face the casket, they do their salute, do a left face, and they walk out. And then the next, we would just, prior to the family going home, just go over the details for the next morning, what time they wanted to be picked up. Some family members, you know, traditionally for... You know the standard funeral they would come to the funeral home the morning of and then there'll be a procession we'll process from the funeral home to the church and then to the cemetery so you know we'll find out from family members if they want more time they want to be here early in the morning they'll you know they'll come early some families like that alone time that they can just kind of sit there and reflect other family members are like you know i don't need a lot of time in the morning most loved ones, you know, that's probably the most difficult time because that's going to be the last time you see your loved one, you know what I mean? So that time, like, you know, we have a planned timeline on what time we want to leave, but that all hinges with the family. If they're not ready to walk away to allow us to close the casket and begin, then the timeline goes out the window. Some priests, we've, uh, might've got them a little annoyed because we were late, but there's not like nothing we can do about it. You know, the timeline is basically a goal, but you know, ultimately, if the family's not already, you know, then we're waiting on them. So from there, it'll be our procession, and the local law enforcement traditionally will provide an escort for us, escort us to over to the church. A tradition that's done. It's kind of an old school tradition. Some families still like it. Other families don't do it. Is to pass the residents. So once we get in you know, close proximity to church, depending again on the, the length and the width of the streets, is we'll have the uniform members. So we have our procession set up, which is traditionally the PD escort. We have the company apparatus, meaning the all the station vehicle where that member was assigned. And then we have the case on the FDNY case on is the rig that's retrofitted to carry the casket. And then we would have the family members behind. When we get close proximity to church, the bagpipers are going to plug in and they're going to march us up to the front of the church. All the uniforms are in formation, lined up, called to attention. Once we get to the front of the church, the pallbearers are now going to carry the deceased in. We're going to, As a mark of respect, we're rendering a hand salute. The bagpipers is going to play and they go inside the church. Pretty much all our traditions and honors are outside. You know, the church, They. Uh, the only thing that we would ask the church is like, We'd sit the family on whatever side that they decide, whether it's the left or right side, and then we would put the uniform members and the VIPs on on the opposite side. That would be the only thing that we ask the church, other than, you know, what we do. So, uh, at the conclusion of the service, again, the pallbearers will walk walk out the you know walk the member to the back of the church, and then pallbearers would carry him out. As again, he comes outside. Uniform members have have already been dismissed, and they're outside, lined up in formation. Will render a hand salute as they carry the casket out. Bagpipers play, and then once he's up on uh, on the caisson, there'll be a secondary salute where we we have a bugler who will play Taps. And traditionally, we do two presentations. So there's a letter of condolence that's presented by the commissioner or his representative, and then the company commander. Will present a helmet. A company that manufactures the helmet as a courtesy to give us a new helmet that's traditionally displayed, and uh, the captain will present that helmet. Once we all the presentations over, and the next phase would be to load, uh, get everybody in the vehicles, and to begin the procession, and then we'll we process over to the cemetery. One of the things about September eleventh is uh, we got too good at this stuff you know we've gone to assist many other departments uh a few years back the 19 forestry guys were killed out in arizona they had a flashover you know they were on one side of the mountain and the fire came so they asked us to come out and help them with their uh, planning their funerals and stuff you know and a lot of them were not conventional funerals as we would know it but we were there to you know just helping any way we can. We sat with families, seen what their their wishes. The location where they got uh where they were killed was is called the Granite Mountain Basin. So on one side of the mountain is where these guys were. On the other side, it looked like a postcard. It was pristine. It was a lake at the base of a granite mountain. You know, and I remember a lot of families wanted to do their service right at that at that location. So, but it was all overgrown. It was a lot of weeds, but. It was like there was sand there. So I went by there one day just to talk to the head like hot shot. I'm like, oh, would there be any chance that we could clean up this a little bit, you know, just for the services? And the next day we went back there. It was like the Jersey Shore. There wasn't a weed for 100 feet in every direction. The place was pristine. So, I mean, to me, I look at it, it's a great honor to be able to, you know, initially maybe I didn't realize what, uh, what we were getting involved in or, but, to be able to sit with somebody and, you know, be able to take the worst day, worst day of their life to make it just that much better, I consider it a great honor, you know. And that's why guys will ask me, you know, why, why why, are you still here? That's part of, you know, we weren't always that good. Uh, the FDNY is great at a lot of things. Now it's good to tell you, you know, fires, you know, emergencies, maybe... Uh, ceremonies and um, funerals we weren't that good at it but after september 11th we've we've become i guess the foremost experts you know we've you know we've been up to connecticut and had a line of duty you know just to help them and again it's not something you want to be good at it's just that's the way it you know the way it went and then unfortunately you know we had no idea that uh, after effects you know how many members would be sick and it uh, and would continue on. Um, now I was gonna tell you when we were young and we first came on the fire department if you were down in the Bureau of Health Services you would see some of the old timers they would have their folder and they would have the phone company fire stamped on their folders. So very similar thing happened to those guys is they started contracting all these uh, rare cancers and because they were exposed to the PCBs and stuff from this fire, which is something, you know, back in in the older days, all your products in your house were all natural. They are all wood, wool, cotton, you know, now everything with synthetics and fibers and all kinds of things. So the, the different type of chemicals that are off gassed when they burn, you know, nobody really knew the difference. So that was probably one of the fires where that started, you know, in the fire service that, guys to be aware back in those days those guys didn't wear masks i don't know how they did what they did but you know uh, again it was a, it was uh, a different world a different environment but um so that was you know what brought the awareness of you know the after effects you know a lot many of those guys were sick and subsequently passed away but uh and now in this generation this world um I, it's almost to the point where i think Everybody expects to get sick that was spent any kind of time. In. You know, Not that you dwell on it, but it's just something that, uh, you know, if, when the time, God forbid, the time comes, but you wouldn't be totally shocked. You know, I know we, we go for a company medical, and then the retirees, you know, can currently go for, uh, you know, department medicals, you know, just to stay on top of, uh, you know, just speaking to a lot of guys that I know. You know, nobody was totally when they did get a diagnosis, you know, weren't totally blown out of the water. I shouldn't say blown out of the water, you know, shocked, you know what I mean, that, you know, it's a possibility. So I think we're at uh, 260 post September 11th members. So uh, in a million years, I don't think anybody had an idea that this would happen, but the type of people that are on this job, if God forbid this situation happened again, you know, guys would still go in and do it, do what they got to do. I mean, it, it's this job. This is more than just a job. You know what I mean? I mean, to be any kind of first responder, it's not just a job. You know, unfortunately, uh, you know our, our uh, brothers and sisters in law enforcement, you know, have things tough nowadays. Uh, you know, to, a lot of anti-cop sentiment, but uh, you know, they do. Uh, the difference between our job and their job i remember when i first rolled over and i'm on the fire truck and people are waving to me i'm like who are they waving at they're like waving at you bro you know they're waving whereas you know the average cop they're not waving because most of your interaction with pd is negative you're calling you know what i mean some you know whatever domestic violence you know there's some kind of thing most of our interaction was we come to help so it's definitely uh, a different uh, transition
0: the, the only time uh we get that that poor treatment is when we're gonna go in and wreck someone's house to chase fire <laughs> remember an old lady one time saying which one you with the wet it down crew or the busted up crew I say, she goes because if you're in the busted up crew you ain't coming in my apartment right so i mean that's it but most people they do they really love us and uh it's not fair to the police right mm. joe and i you know wore the other badge and not many people greeting you with open arms on the uh, police end of it
1: but as soon as things go bad
0: that's the first that's who they, they call. call that's who they call i asked joe which funeral was the hardest for him
1: uh i would say um my good friend john martinson so as nels could say we we both lost a lot of friends on september 11th you know what i mean But I got to say, on September 11th, Staten Island took a big hit. You know, a lot of guys that we grew up with or went to school with, knew from work. But uh, John Monson was, you know, the first guy in my inner circle. John was killed in a high-rise fire in uh, January 3rd, 2008 in the Ebbett Field Projects. So it was a wind-driven, a wind-impacted fire. So I got to say that was, um, you know, it hit home, you know what I mean? It's, you know, you're a guy, but, you know, I remember uh, at the time, I believe it was Chief Kilduff, and he was our chief of department, he asked me if I wanted to step out. So I was like, nah, I'm not letting somebody else do. You know, John's nickname was Johnny Nice Guy. So, uh, John was uh, one of those guys, um, he could be a hard shell, you know what I mean, uh, on the outside. There's even the guys in the firehouse are like, Johnny, nice guy. Where'd you get that from? You know, from. But John was the kind of guy, he would do anything. I, this house, when I first bought this house, was, uh, it was a cape. And I uh, had a problem with the, we patched the roof and I got a torrential rainstorm and the water's pouring in. So I call him up to say, I go, you got a talk, I could borrow? It's like 1 o'clock in the morning. It's raining sideways. Within 10 minutes, John's up here, or here, and two of us are climbing on the roof, you know, patching the top in the middle of the rain. As, when John passed away, we, we found, we heard more stories. Um, There's a gentleman we both know, Richie Obermeyer, was a, a firefighter with me, his brother, Chris. So we, he had, John's in uh, Home Depot, and he sees this guy's trying to put, like, 20 boards of sheetrock on top of the roof of his car. And John walks over, he's like, hey, aren't you an Obermeyer? He's like, yeah, who are you? He goes, I'm John Martin. I know your brother, Richie. So with that, John loaded the 20 boards of Rock in his pickup truck, and he drove to Richie's house, helped him carry it up to the second floor. So that's why we, we call him Johnny Nice Guy. Um, like I said, all of us, we all bought houses. This house was built in 1927. It was, you know, we, we renovated it, but John, the first guy to show up, you know, you're going to start your demo, you know, we're going to start demoing, eight o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning. Johnny nice guy's the first guy here with his tools. Let's go, cuz, let's get started, you know what I mean? But he's done that for everybody, and at the time of his death, his house, he had we just renovated his house, and he was getting ready to, he was pushing to get in there. Uh, holidays were coming, so I told him, one thing I learned when I was doing my house, I'm like, listen, don't rush, you know what I mean? Like, you know, wait till you, you're done and then you move in. So he was, he had been renting something and then he was actually, his mom lived next door. He was living next door. So unfortunately, uh, John never got to live into in his new house, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, was an amazing guy. But at the same time, he's a hard ass, you know what I mean? Like at the firehouse, if the guys weren't doing the right thing, he had no problem telling them they weren't doing the right thing. So, like we said, when we came up with the nickname "Johnny," Johnny, nice guy, they're looking at us like, "You talking about the same guy?"
0: But it's sort of like our damn selves, right? We got that little yeah. bit of a rough exterior <laughs> at times, but we have a soft edge too. We just sometimes you can't sort of soft edge to certain guys. Isn't yeah. true. Johnny wasn't. So, he was. A I to say man. that was, was a good uh, man. Yes. You know,
1: I was that was definitely. Uh, you know, tough. I mean, uh, we've have, we have a picnic every year to com- commemorate John's memory. We, we started a small foundation. Nothing big, you know, we have no major donors. Basically, that part of, um, you know, those uh, canteens that we did at the PD funerals, you know, the other, John uh, Chapura was a good friend. One, Chip works with, his brother works with us, and his brother was killed on September 11th. And then uh, the other guy, Scotty Kniff, his brother Danny worked with us. His brother It was a P- NYPD sergeant. So to me, all those foundations, it does the same thing that one of the traditions that we have in the fire department is on the one-year anniversary of your death of an active member or these World Trade Center is a bronze plaque that gets put up in the firehouse or the EMS station. So what that bronze plaque does is it perpetuates that member's name forever because the tradition is if I'm the senior guy and you walk in, you're the junior guy, I'm going to tell you the story of what and then 25 years later, 30 years later, when you're the senior guy and a new junior guy, and he's like, well, who are these guys? You know what I mean? So that's, you know, it's the same thing when people do a street dedication or, you know, at the 9-11 Museum, those names are there forever. You know what I mean? Hopefully they'll read those names forever. That's always been, a, I think, a little bone of a contention, you know, whether politically or whatever, that, you know, should those names be read, to take a quote from Frank Silla. And he said, listen, every year, those names need to be read aloud. And I know even talking to uh, Gerard Shapura, his brother John, and he feels the same way. Knowing that once a year, my brother's name is being said, you know, read aloud. You know what I mean? That should go on forever. So hopefully that tradition will carry on forever. I know, you know, two years ago, it. It didn't, you know. I mean, uh, the Silla Foundation, when the 9/11 Memorial decided, basically, they're gonna do a pre-recorded due to COVID restrictions, and then uh, Frank says, "No, we're, we're reading these names aloud." So, uh, to me, that's super important, and uh, you know, consider a great honor to be able to be down there every year, you know, when they read these names, and you know, you see people that. Um, some people come off that stage after reading their loved one's name are just as distraught as they were, I think, when it happens, you know? But it's truly, and that's our promise, right? To, to the families, what we told them, you know, we will never forget, you know what I mean? And then by all this, even what you guys are doing, this is to assure that, you know, people never forget. So I have uh, two years with correction, six years as a cop, and then in January of 32 with FDNY. So, my plan is I think uh, the end of the year, I'm gonna retire. So, uh, you know, there's a couple guys that, uh, you know, have worked side by side. I, I believe that they could, uh, are capable of, uh, you know, taking the lead. And I explained to them, I'm just a phone call away, you know what I mean? So, I, I can go you know, help them, call me for anything. Uh, through the years of doing this, I mean, I don't think, God forbid, there's never a, a tragic event like September 11th. I don't know if you're ever gonna have somebody who's done this for 20 years again, you know what I mean? And to this magnitude, like I said, prior to, there might've been guys in this position, but you didn't have the volume of funerals, you know what I mean, like this, all the post September 11th stuff, so.
0: We need more like you, buddy, and uh, I wish you well in your retirement. I'm sorry to see you going, but I I can't believe you've done it this long. I could not have uh, stayed that long, my friend. You're you're truly unique. So, Joe, God bless you, and uh, be safe, my friend. Thank you very much. Joe, it was my honor to serve under your command and alongside of you at too many funerals. As a member of the FDMY Ceremonial Unit, you're a true professional who has provided endless empathy, dignity, and respect to our fallen brothers' families. You have helped our great friends arrive safely home. I love you, my brother and my friend. Thank you for all you have done for our great job. Wishing you many years of happy retirement. God bless you always. And folks, if you've enjoyed these stories, be sure to check out our website, 20 20 podcastcom and consider signing up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page, You'll receive notifications about our latest episodes and great written summaries of them as well. We'll also notify you on future projects at iron light labs. Lastly, I want to give a special shout out to all of those who have served our great country in one way or another from the bottom of our hearts. We thank you and please stay safe out there. And now before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine.
1: Hi, this is actor, Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl Rescue Me, but I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen, folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today, as Nils so powerfully says. I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them, so I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.